The United States officially pulled its physical presence out of Afghanistan. The Delta variant is surging. Summer's coming to an end. The first day of school looms. There's a lot to unpack in this bittersweet transition week between August and September. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. All people in the America, in the U.S., they're really you know, kind people. They sheltered us and then they helped my children. I don't know how to appreciate them. Christy Gustafson Barletti talks to former News Channel 13 anchor reporter Paulina Butska about why she left news and what she's doing now. There has to be a better way to tell people's stories, and, and local news may not be that outlet. And he's covered everything from Siena basketball's stunning 1989 NCAA win to PGA golf. We'll say farewell to one of our sports writing legends, Pete Doherty. Longtime uh, people in this area remember that was the measles year where they uh, had me- a measles outbreak on campus. They had to play their last nine games without spectators. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once more with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We'll go over the top headlines. Let's start with the fact that the remnants of Hurricane Ida hit New York this week. It caused devastating flooding particularly in New York City. Uh, the capital region was spared, thankfully, but the effects of the damage downstate are are pretty relevant here. So can you give us a summary of, of what's going on? Yeah, not only the New York City area, but also parts of the lower Hudson Valley really got hammered. In New York City, you saw just these incredible inch totals for rain, you know, seven, eight inches in a very um, short amount of time. In the city, I think especially in Brooklyn, you saw on Twitter, just incredible um, video of flooded subway stations, uh, whole streets looking more like the level of flooding that you would expect to see, uh, you know, in New Orleans. And it's yet another indication that these storms are coming uh, with a lot more frequency, especially during hurricane season, obviously, and that our state's infrastructure is not dealing with them as much as it clearly needs to. Over to Schoharie, where limo company operator Nauman Hussein has pleaded guilty, and this nearly three years since the tragic Schoharie limo crash. Can you tell us what happened this week? Yeah, a not unexpected, but still obviously a, a traumatic day for the families and friends of the 20 people who lost their lives on October 6, 2018. Uh, Naman Hussein, the operator of Prestige Limousine, the son of Shahed Hussein, who was the uh, owner of the company, pleaded guilty to 20 counts of criminally negligent homicide uh, in a plea deal uh, in exchange for five years of probation and a thousand hours of community service. He's also going to be barred from uh, working in the transportation industry for the rest of his life. 
It's a complex case. The district attorney, Susan Mallory, has been a rather controversial figure. Uh, many elements of you know the, the community of relatives of those who lost their lives on that day are very upset. Many of them, of course, have civil actions that they've brought against various entities, including Nauman Hussein personally. It was a dramatic scene as Larry Rulison, who has just done wonderful, probing, hard-hitting work on the various tentacles of this case, noted in his reporting, the judge read out the names of all 20 of the victims, and that's all 18 people, 17 passengers and the driver in the vehicle, and then two people in the parking lot of the Apple Barrel Country Store in Schoharie who were killed when the, the limousine you know, barreled through the parking lot. Each name was read off and, and the judge said, are, are you in fact, uh, if he caused each of those deaths? And he said yes to each one. And, you know, there were occasional outbursts in the room, which was a, a large, I believe, gymnasium setting because um, the judge in the case wanted to make sure that there was enough room for everyone who wanted to attend and they could be socially distanced as well. So as you noted, almost three years since the catastrophe, which remains the deadliest you know, ground transportation accident in almost a decade. Moving on to a bit of world and national news here. Obviously, the United States pulled out of Afghanistan officially all of its uh, military presence here in the capital region. However, we had been following a story about a woman who was struggling to get her children out of Afghanistan and now has succeeded. And so we had a, a moment this week in the paper uh, on video and written by Pete DeMola. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, Pete uh, initially wrote, I guess it's about two weeks ago now, about the, the case of Sunita, a woman uh, from Afghanistan who uh, escaped that country, now lives in Albany and had been desperately trying to get her four children out of Afghanistan as the Taliban was sweeping through and taking control. Luckily, this story reached the ears and probably email boxes of a lot of people, um, including journalists like Jake Tapper of CNN, uh, elected officials like Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand, um, and Assemblywoman Pat Fahey uh, among them, who connected Sunita with groups that were able to help get her kids out. She uh, traveled down to Washington, D.C. to meet them as they flew in. And Pete was there on Monday afternoon at Albany International Airport when uh, they landed in Albany. And you could you could see from the photos and from the video clips that Pete put up that there was uh, a lot of gratitude and just a, you know, an overwhelming flood of emotion there. Yes, I highly encourage you to go over to timesunion.com and see that video. It's it's very moving. Moving on to Albany news. An Albany police officer has been officially fired for his racist comments. Can you tell us about what happened there? Yeah, David Hopped, who was uh, an Albany police officer, was caught last year on body camera video that captured somewhat inadvertently by a sheriff's deputy who uh, Hopped was riding along with, 
making racist statements, specifically uh, referring to black people as the worst blanking race. As soon as this came to light, the Times Union Steve Hughes first reported on this video, the city moved to terminate him. What happened this week is an arbitrator rejected his appeal, saying that uh, despite Hop's defense that, well, my comments were taken out of context, they were not, in fact, taken out of context, that these were clearly racist uh, statements he was making, that it would have made it impossible for him to do his job, his uh, obviously his ability to testify in any court case involving people of color would be shredded. And also he brought, um, you know, dishonor to uh, to his fellow officers. Hopped has a long history of kind of poor performance on the job that also convinced the arbitrator that he should not be on the force. And this comes, we should note, in the wake of several decisions by arbitrators who concluded that essentially police culture within the Albany force and officers being held to regulations was so poor that officers who, uh, in the case of the the March 2019 First Street melee, you know, engaged in acts of misconduct, should have their discipline either lifted or reduced. In other words, saying the Albany Police Department is doing such a poor job of enforcing its own regulations that these officers should not be held accountable, that they that they are essentially being singled out, which is not exactly a ringing endorsement of the way the Albany Police Department is managed, as the Times Union's editorial board recently pointed out. All right. One final topic today, the 20th anniversary of September 11th, the attacks, is coming up next week. We've planned some coverage of this kind of remarkable anniversary. A lot of people up here were affected by the towers falling. Can you give us a preview of what we're going to see in the paper? Yeah, obviously, considering the bonds that link the capital region and New York City, 9-11 fell in, in very meaningful and terrible ways across this community, as it did in so many others. Pete DeMola has, uh, along with help from Steve Barnes, has assembled the stories of people who lived in the capital region back then, including grieving parents. Uh, as well as people who have moved to the capital region in the years since 9-11 about how they experienced that day and what it's meant to them over the course of the last 20 years. Um, and that story will appear over the weekend. And next week, we'll have additional stories on you know, the legacy of 9-11, what it's meant for the local Muslim community, how it was experienced by uh, Times Union journalists who uh, who went down there to cover the aftermath of the, the catastrophe and more. I, a newspaper is supposed to be kind of the town square for, for its community. And I think um, helping people remember and think about what 9-11 has meant, not just to this community, but to our culture writ large is, is a really important job. I, I think that these stories have been put together with a lot of craft. And of course, we will have a special episode of The Eagle next week that takes a look at that as well. Casey, thank you so much. And we will check back in with you next week. Jess, thanks a lot. As always, you can read more about all the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Moving on, former WNYT anchor and reporter Paulina Butska 
was one of about a dozen newscasters to leave the local industry in the last year, and one of the half dozen or so to leave News Channel 13. Butska left in July after just four months on the job. The Times Union's Christy Gustafson Barletti recently caught up with her to learn more about why she left and what she's up to now. Hi, Paulina. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Christy. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you too. So you came in to work as a morning anchor. You came here from, you moved here from Kentucky. You sort of uprooted your whole life. You were here for a few months and then you decided to leave the station in July. So talk to us a little bit about why you left and then what's next. I think for me, it was, I wanted more. You know, I I love being out in the community. I love telling people stories. And as much as I love anchoring, anchoring doesn't give you a lot of that time. You know, there's not that much of a, a, I guess, leisure into, hey, let's go out into the community. Let's tell these stories. And towards the end of my time, I just found that I, like, it just wasn't working, right? Like it was not what I wanted to do or how I wanted to tell news. And so um, it was very amicable when we left, you know, I kind of expressed my concerns to, you know, to management and, and we kind of parted ways that way. And so in the meantime, what I started to do was uh, follow a passion project that, you know, I had kind of pitched it when I was still working in Louisiana many years ago. And the station there was uh, phenomenal, but they're just like, we're not a podcast people, right? Like we, we don't do that. We're a news station. Kentucky, when I moved there, they had a podcast, but it was all true crime. That didn't work with what I wanted to do. I love true crime, but um, I think there's, there's a different need for the public and the community right now. You know, and so I said, if not now, then when? And so I kind of walked away from news and said, I'm taking a big leap of faith. I'm seeing, I'm believing before I'm seeing, and I'm going to launch a podcast. So tell us a little bit about the name of your podcast and how you came up with this idea. I know you said it's a passion project. You've had it in mind for a while. Where did this idea come from and what inspired you? 10 years ago, my dad committed suicide. And I knew that when he died, I wanted to make sure that his death did not go in vain. We were blindsided by his death. Two years later, I picked up and I moved cross country to try to run away from my issues, right? And so I've kind of had this great backdrop of news where I didn't have to face it because I would tell other people's stories and other people's traumas. And I never had to face my own demons. And so the podcast came about when I started to talk to more and more people. And I was like, wow, everybody seems to have a story, you know, like may not be suicide, but everybody's got something that they're going through. And so many of these people in my time and travels had helped me along the way, you know, kind of in my ups and downs of mental health. And so now where I'm at in my, the point of my life, I said, you know, it's time to tell people my story and the way to, to do that, or at least the way to open the conversation about mental health is by telling my story and finally opening that platform up and saying, Hey, let's have a discussion about mental health. Because if 2020 taught us anything, it's that nobody nobody is immune from mental health. And, you know, whether it's on a low level or on a large level, you know, we saw high rates of suicide during 2020. And and then going into 2021, we saw high rates of depression. We saw, you know, people with instability, right? Food instability, housing instability, all of that plays a role into how, how we function as humans and our mental health. And so the podcast is called, and that's okay. It's about these moments in our life that, you know, kind of life throws curveballs at you and you're not ready for them. And oftentimes we're not right. And so it's, it's 
not okay, right? But we're, we're taking those moments in our life and figuring out how to make them okay. Now, in addition to your father, which obviously was you're probably, I'm sure your biggest curveball, what other would, what other curveballs would you say that you've met that really have helped you grow where you thought this might be a stop point, but it's not going to be, I'm not going to let it be. I'm going to overcome it and have this help me with my growth. My divorce was another thing that really affected me. And I go into detail kind of what happened in my marriage and all mingled with even the job and and the marriage aspect and and being new to a city and kind of trying to navigate all these different things, right? Because you're navigating in news, we're, we're in like a new station every two years, right? So you're always, there's always that mental struggle of, will I fit in? This is a new city, new friends, new people, new job, you know, so add that a new marriage, a very dysfunctional, toxic marriage, and then trying to navigate through the woes and ups and downs of, of just kind of news life, all of that, you know, kind of propelled me onto this path of where I'm at today, where the death of my father was so horrific and it took me such a long time to be okay to even talk about it. Um, and I talk about that, right? Like I talk about my journey with therapy. I talk about my journey with depression and, um, and, and his suicide, but I also now talk about very openly the abuse that I went through, right? In my marriage and then the divorce process and other people's stories that, helped me along the way to get better to realizing that this is going to be okay. You know, like you're not okay right now, but you're going to be okay. It's going to take some time. Um, And so that's what we're doing. I'm sharing in a lot of people's traumas, uh, a lot of people's journeys, the same way that I would in news on just a bigger level on a, on a longer scale. Right. So podcasting gives me time to do it on an hour instead of a minute and 30. Is there anybody's name you could share somebody that people should watch out for to listen and see, join you on the podcast? Episode one, which will not be on the ninth, will be the following week, September 16th, will be Benita Zahn. And so she kicks us off with a great conversation and it's lighthearted. Benita is phenomenal. You know, when I walked into the news station, she was one of the first people I met and we like, we clicked right away. I guess we only worked a handful of times together because our times are so different, but we've had lunch since then. We've had phone conversations, text messages, and she's become this just guide for me. And, and she too right now is going through so many life changes. And so that that's, that's kind of where we kick it off. We kick it off on a light note, but a great note nonetheless. You mentioned Benita Zahn, obviously both you and Benita left the industry, like I said, to kind of go on to your next step in your career. What do you think it is about local news? And this is not just television news. It's it's print that I work in. It's radio. <laughs> it's, it's news and media as a whole. What do you think is causing, from your opinion, at this point in time, this kind of the last couple of years, really having people leave and start careers outside of, of the business and outside of the industry? I don't know that my news career is over altogether. Like I walked away from news now because I need to work on this passion project and this is what's calling me. I can't say I'm, I'm out of news forever. I just know I'm out of news for now. Most recently, I've had so many friends who did leave news and I think it's the pressure. I think it's, the times are changing. Uh, the audience is changing. People don't necessarily, you know, I guess look to news the way that they used to before the time crunch on the the amount of time that we have to tell stories is there and it's real, you know, it's fast paced. It's, it's great. It's local, but you lose so much of the essence of what these stories need to have. And you can't do that in a minute and 30 or a minute and 10 minutes, a minute and 10 seconds. Right. So, um, you know, deadlines, the, the way that newsrooms just operate, I think has changed in the last six, seven, eight years that I've been in it. And I think all of that together 
coupled with just the times that we're in, you know, the fake news movement and, um, you know, Kentucky, we, I, I lived through the, the social justice uh, protests. And I think all of that kind of puts a lot of things into perspective for a lot of people. And they say, do I want to keep calling my family and saying, you know, I was okay, but I wasn't, you know, and like it kind of right. it stays with you. And, and so I think for, for so many of us, it's just saying there has to be a better way to tell people's stories and, and local news may not be that outlet. After the break, we'll take a look back at the illustrious career of longtime TU sports writer Pete Doherty. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you've perused the Times Union sports section at any point during the last 36 years, you've definitely seen Pete Doherty's byline. The veteran sports writers covered everything from local D1 basketball and hockey to professional golf and bowling. And he's reported on some major sports moments here, including Sienna's historic NCAA upset of Stanford in 1989. He retired in August, though you still may occasionally see his byline. I caught up with him before he left to take a look back at his almost four-decade career at the TU. Let's talk about your career at the Times Union. Did you always cover sports? I've always covered sports here. Before I came here, I worked at the Only End Times Herald. It's a, a small paper in western New York, about 90 minutes uh, south of Buffalo. When I went to Only End, I discovered... If you got to the top of the food chain in the newsroom in Olean, well, you got to cover the Olean Common Council. And I'm just thinking, there's got to be better things to do than that. And in sports, especially when I went to the Times-Herald, they immediately got me some really good assignments. I was covering the Bills. I was covering the Sabres. I uh, wound up covering St. Bonaventure basketball for six years. So, you know, fun things to do, people, things that people in that community you knew cared about. So I just found that much more fascinating than, than going to a, a school board meeting or something like that. Wow, you covered the Bills? That's so cool. You're wearing a Bills mask. Nobody can see you now because we're on a podcast. But I do want to note that Pete is wearing a Bills mask. All right, so you came to the Times Union. What did you first do when you started here? I mean, you came from a market where there was an NFL team to Albany where there's not. <laughs> it's funny. I was hired to uh, cover Union College football, RPI hockey, and I was going to be the fourth person on Saratoga. This is back when we had an enormous staff. We had 17 full-time sports writers and six part-time. The only thing I ever wound up doing among those was the RPI hockey, uh, just due to circumstances. And then things evolve as you know people leave, and I got other opportunities. I went from RPI hockey to Siena basketball. And that's one of the bigger things that I, I've done because I got to cover their first NCAA basketball 
tournament uh, appearance, and then they upset Stanford back in 1989 down in Greensboro. That was back in a time when you know, there was no internet. People would look at you, wow, you're so lucky to be down there. They read every word I wrote. We wrote a lot. I remember, we, we, I think I wrote myself five stories off their first game. Uh, Long-time uh, people in this area remember that was the measles year where they uh, had me a measles outbreak on campus. They had to play their last nine games without spectators. Wow, wait a minute. That kind of rings a little a little familiar right now. They allowed media in. I had to get a shot. I thought I was immune because I was old enough, but they said I wasn't, so I, uh, someone else covered a couple games for me. But then the, they had the conference tournament in Hartford, no fans. They uh, won their NCAA bid there, and about all you could hear was the Siena radio announcer just screaming because it was an empty gym, and you hear the squeak of sneakers. Uh, and so that was, you know, it was an incredible year. Then they they beat Stanford to, to, to uh, win an NCAA game. So, tell me about some of the other amazing things that stand out in your memory that you've covered. This, a lot of the things I covered were successful. I covered the 1989 Albany Colony Yankees. Buck Showalter, who uh, Yankee fans remember, is managing that team. And they were 70 and 20 at one point in the season, and they wound up winning. They didn't have a lot of uh, players who advanced to the majors, but a couple of years later, they had Derek Jeter and Jorge Posada. Bernie Williams, um, Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit all played through Albany. So that was uh, it's pretty cool to cover those teams. You weren't sure who the, who the prospects were, and some of the ones who made it might have surprised us. Some of the ones who didn't make it surprised us. But, you know, you know that was a pretty cool thing to do uh, for those years. Did an awful lot of uh, hockey. I did the Albany uh, River Rats when they came into uh, existence. I did 20 out of their 24 seasons. They later became the Albany Devils. Hockey players are great to deal with. They're the, they're the best athletes. They just—they're uh, humble. They're not—they're not spoiled. They—they they appreciate it. Uh, what they—what they get. They're pretty well spoken and uh, really tough. Really tough guys uh, for sure. I've covered some golf here uh, for probably 20 years. That's uh, interesting because I've done both local and national. Uh, I've been to the Masters 16 times. I've also covered U.S. Opens, Ryder Cups, uh, uh, PGA Championships. I've uh, done a bowling column for like, like the last 15 or 20 years. Well, that's what I was going to ask about next. Tell me about your bowling column. Everybody talks about your bowling column. Yeah. Bowling is about the only uh, activity that I'm actually somewhat proficient in. I'm, I bowl in a lot of tournaments. I've won, won a handful. I find it helps to be in that environment because I understand what it takes to be an elite bowler. I'm not saying that I do all the things that the, the very best do in this area. But I understand the, the practice, I understand the pressure you're under in a, in a situation where you, one shot could mean $500 or $1,000. Uh, I, I can appreciate that and it, it translates to other sports. I don't, the bowling to me set, set the foundation for that. And when that opening came about, it was a natural thing for me to do. And it's, it's, it wasn't hard for me to do because there was interest in it. And uh, I'll, it's one of the things I'll probably want to do in retirement is just to bowl more tournaments because I'll have the time and the schedule freedom to do that. Covering sports during a global pandemic. I mean, bowling was probably affected by the pandemic as well, although maybe not as much as some other sports. But but tell me, what was it like for you? You know, you've covered sports for three, four decades. What was it like? It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Biggest effect, I thought, I cover you Albany basketball for the past four years. I could not go on the road. We did everything by Zoom. And that's that's the difficulty. You try to establish relationships with the people you deal with, uh, just so they're comfortable with you, so they they will open up to you when you interview them. And it's, you can't establish that over Zoom. Every every interview we did was not only me, but it was the Gazette, it was uh, the TV stations, like and, a pool interview. Yeah, yeah, and you had to take turns asking questions, and and then you get to the point where there's so many people on the Zoom call, you didn't want to ask too much because you didn't want the Zoom call to last forever. So, you know, we got stories. 
We actually got better road stories than we used to. Like if we didn't go on, if I didn't go to a UAlbany road game, it would be difficult to do a good story. You'd have to listen to the radio or something. Well, now every game is televised. The league that UAlbany was in demanded Zoom calls for both visiting and home teams. So I was able to get the coach and a player after the game on Zoom. So at least we could write a full story on it without having to travel. And golf really wasn't much different. Uh, I got a lot of traffic early in 2020 because people wanted to know what the situation was with the golf courses being open or closed and the mandates and stuff and anything I wrote on that got a lot of traffic. Eventually they were allowed out there uh, with restrictions on carts and things like that. And, uh, it was one of the few activities we could do. So golf uh, really took a, uh, uh, got a boom with uh, the, the, the pandemic. The play I believe was up 15 to 20 percent over the preceding year. Now, you had the unique perspective of having at least seen something like this happen before with that measles outbreak in the late 80s. I mean, the basketball game with no fans to me was like, oh, my gosh, I've never even heard of such a thing, you know, or a football game or whatever. But you're like, oh, I've seen that before, right? Yeah, it was a little different this time. I, th- I thought the, in 2021-22, the bench made more of an eff- both benches made an effort to make some noise. So there's some a little bit of noise <laughs> in the gym. Yeah. And, you know, players hollering. Back then, I don't think the players knew how to react, other than the coaches yelling. And I think they were reserved because they didn't want everything. If the game was televised, they didn't want everything getting picked up by TV because through language can be salty sometimes. And, <laughs> and so yeah. I think it was a little quieter. You heard the squeak of sneakers and stuff, but I think it was more subdued back during the measles time. And Where do you see sports reporting going in the future? Because you mentioned a lot about how, you know, when you kind of were covering it in the 80s, People were reading your stuff because they couldn't get there because of this measles outbreak. But now, even in non-pandemic times now, like sports, you can just read it live on Twitter or whatever. Like, what do you think the future is going to be for sports reporting? I think we have to start going toward more column opinion pieces than just uh, game reporting because even if it's poor reporting, they can get that other places. Uh, the uh, schools usually put out releases uh, after the game, although some of them take like four or five hours to get up online. So we're actually online before them. But I think they already know a lot about the what happened. They'd be interested in knowing more of the whys and hows. And I think we become more column oriented. I could, I could see us doing more things like that. What are you going on to do next? Do you know? There are some things I'd like to explore, some related to what I'm doing now. I, might st- I still want to do some writing. I'm interested in sports officiating. There's a shortage of them. So I may go back into umpiring, which I did before I came here, but we never had the flexibility in our schedules to, to do something like that in addition to our job. So I, I never was able to pursue that. So I might, I might look into that. But, you know, right now the canvas is pretty blank and I'll just enjoy a few weeks before I make any decisions. Oh, that's wonderful. That'll be so exciting. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we'll miss you, but I'm glad to hear that your byline is still going to be appearing. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, thanks, Jessica. It's a pleasure being with you. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of The Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from The Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Christy Gustafson-Barletti, Pete Doherty, and Pete DeMola for their reporting and contribution to this episode. 